Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our weekly Bible study. And I'm sure that many of you who um, are listening to this today or whenever you're listening to it are wondering where the time is going. Um, it just seems like uh, one day um, and then the next day I'm doing another Bible study. Time is really running away with us. And um, as we share in this, we are nearly halfway through this year. And one can't really believe that either. So today we're going to look at a passage from Acts, Acts chapter 3. Um, I really am enjoying uh, looking at, um, at the book of Acts again, um, certainly in some of our Sunday messages, as well as in the season of the Spirit and Pentecost. It's good to remind ourselves of what happened in the early church, certainly after um, that moment when God poured His Holy Spirit out upon the believers, um, and just to be reminded of those familiar stories, but also then to ask ourselves um, some challenging questions, I suppose, and to also seek God's Spirit in our own lives. So we're going to go to these, um, these two particular accounts in Acts chapter 3 that are familiar for us. But let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we gather around your scriptures today. Thank you so much for Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, and how he accounted many things that happened in the life of the early church. As we discuss this and study this today, we, we ask that your spirit would highlight those, um, those parts that are very relevant for us individually, but also corporately as a church, that we would learn and that the, the scriptures would come alive for us so that your kingdom may come and your will be done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So those of you who grew up in the church context and uh, went to Sunday school would pr probably remember Acts chapter 3 linked in with that Sunday school song. Um, Peter and John went to pray one day when they met a lame man on the way. And you can sing that song if you want to remember it. And uh, hopefully you can get it out of your mind as you then go out through the rest of your day. But let me start in verse 1. It says, one day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Okay, let me just state the obvious here. The, the, the Jewish folk, um, and Peter and John, remember being Jews themselves, were uh, very faithful in prayer. Pray three times a day, um, normally noon, afternoon, and then in the evening. And so they are, they are praying um, now at three o'clock in the afternoon, they'll be joining other folk who are going to the temple to pray. And there's something else that we can see behind the scenes in this, is that just notice the change in the disciples. Uh, obviously, Acts chapter 2 is the moment of Pentecost, and we see that as the watershed moment um, in the disciples' lives and the church. But uh, if we cast our minds back to the end of um, the Gospels, where the disciples themselves, the same Peter and John, amongst the others, were meeting in a locked room for fear of the Jews, for fear of those who would call them out or who may arrest them. Now we see a change already, certainly in the way that Luke is portraying it, that they are publicly willing to go out and to go to the temple to pray. Um, maybe there still is a little bit of anxiety in them, but the courage of the Spirit is with them, and they go up now publicly to pray. There, verse 2 says, A man, a crippled man from birth, was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg 
from those going into the temple courts. So just a few thoughts that I had when I was was reading this again today was just to note that the gate that they're talking about here is not, not the gate of the city of Jerusalem. Um, if you remember in our Bible study on Nehemiah, we spoke about some of the various gates, but this is the actual temple gate, and it was called Beautiful, and this is where he was put every day to beg. Now, I asked myself the question, who, um, who was carrying him every day? Now, we can assume that it's family uh, or close friends. I was thinking about that other story in the Gospels where the four friends lowered their crippled friend through the roof and Jesus prayed um, and healed him also. But there's, there's no way this man, because it tells us that he was crippled from birth, would have been able to get there without the help of someone. Um, and, and he went to the temple courts very much because it was a good place to beg. Um, I mean, it makes a lot of sense that religious people, religious Jewish people, were on the way to worship God. And, um, you know, as part of their, their tradition, part of not just the Jewish custom, certainly Christian um, expectations, Christian community, and many other faith communities, is to be generous. Because as you give to others, so you give to God. And so, I mean, it's a really good place to, to place yourself to earn your daily living. Um, and so uh, I'm assuming that this man would, would get his daily living from people going to the temple, being reminded of their duty, and then putting some money into his tin or, or whatever it was. Um, if you want to expand on that, one could speak about some topics like guilt, and um, religious guilt, financial guilt, but that's for another conversation. Um, I think the same would happen in our own context here, and I know that in certainly in the Fishhook Church as well as the Simonstown Church, we have a number of folk who come in from the streets, and um, they they some some folk come and just worship with us, but there are also some folk who use it as an opportunity uh, to ask for things. Um, and you can't really blame them because they see it as an opportune time for, for, for them because Christians are supposed to be generous. And certainly on a Sunday at a time of worship, they, they uh, draw the conclusion that we should be even more generous. Um, and then we wrestle with what it is to give and how much and how do we feed people who are, who are struggling. Like I say, it's a massive big conversation to have. But this man, the crippled man, sees an opportunity and he's there. Verse 3, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. So not just Peter and John, but because Luke is retelling the story, he focuses on Peter and John. And then verse 4, Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And you can picture the scene here. Then Peter said, look at us. Now, I don't want to put too much um, of my own thoughts into the scripture. It may just be a, a retelling of the story that engages us as the listeners and the hearers of the story. But it's possible that people, when they walked into the temple, would give money without looking at the person. And maybe even the beggar themselves would, would hang their head in shame and not, and not look. So there's just this whole sense of guilt in, in, that, in that moment. And and maybe Peter is just trying to address that. Maybe he's trying to bring back the humanity and the dignity in this whole um, encounter. 
but whatever he says to the beggar, look at us. One of the other commentators I was reading, a gentleman by the name of Philip Moore, he, um, he suggests that uh, when Peter says, look at us, is that he was trying to get the beggar's attention to move from his wallet, from, so from Peter's wallet to his face. And so he was saying to him, look at me, because when you see my face, you'll see that I am changed. Um, and, and if you even go back to, or actually go forward to Acts 6, verse 15, where you see Stephen um, is in the Sanhedrin, it says they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And maybe there's an understanding that when we encounter God, there's a change in us. And, and you have heard testimonies of this and even seen people whose, whose whole demeanor changes when they've encountered Christ. Um, and so perhaps Peter is saying to him, look, you've seen me go to the temple before, but now that I've been empowered by the Spirit, look, look at me, look at me. Verse 5, so the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And obviously the expectation was money. Um, and maybe he was expecting a lecture or something like that. But then verse 6, Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. And those of you who remember the Sunday School song are singing, silver or gold have I none, said he. But such as I have give I unto thee. And he says, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk, get up, as the song says. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And so this is a, a, a miracle. It's happened uh, through the lives of Peter and John, two of the disciples, as we know, very well-known disciples, but also two of the disciples who a few weeks or months earlier had been um, almost fading out in terms of their relationship with Jesus, going back to the old ways of life, ready to pack it all in. And yet God has now empowered them for this great, great task. I just found it interesting, and this is just a comment that I'm making on my own, is that this man, I mean, this is a very amazing miracle that he isn't given a name. Um, and I wonder about that, but that's something that we can ask Luke one day uh, when we see him face to face. Verse 11, while the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade, which is in the temple area. It's like a whole lot of, um, almost like a portico uh, veranda area in the, in the temple. When Peter saw this, he said to them, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One, and you asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know 
was made strong. It is Jesus' name and faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can now see. Now, in this, 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 this long um, mini-sermon, if you like, from Peter, what is, what is interesting is that nowhere in these verses does Peter draw attention to themselves. He, he deflects the attention to God. The, the whole emphasis on this, in this healing is that it's done through the power of Jesus' name. And he even goes to the people that are in the temple now when he addresses them as men of Israel. It would have been predominantly just Jewish men. And, and he also, I think it's a phrase of, of respect. Um, and he speaks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob because that's the, the Jewish ancestry. Um, and then he also shares a little bit about what has happened just to remind people of what has taken place. But he's saying, I think in a nutshell what he's saying is this same Jesus that you orchestrated to get rid of, it's by the same person, the same name of Jesus that this man has been healed. And so Christ is alive. That's really what he's, uh, what he's saying. Um, that phrase, verse 15, you killed the author of life. In, uh, in Greek, the word is archegos, A-R-C-H-E-G-O-S, which means the one who begins something. It can also mean a ruler, a leader, a founder. And, uh, and Jesus um, is, is this, the author of life in so many ways. I mean, if we, if we understand the Trinity, and we're moving in this, again, the church calendar to the time of the Trinity, such a difficult thing to understand, but we, we know that Jesus speaks about how um, he was with God in the beginning, and so, in that sense, Jesus is also the author of life, the creator of life, um, also the ruler, the founder, um, the first person. As an author, you know, that's the person who pens things down or begins something as a, as a book or a novel or something. It is the, Jesus is the first person who was resurrected from the dead. And he is the pioneer, if you like, of eternal life, the one who's been there and who leads us, his followers, into that eternal life. So uh, I, I think it's a lovely phrase, um, the author of life. I think it's in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, where he also speaks about that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. So not only is he, is he through the power of his spirit, the one who initiates the author, but he's also the one who perfects that, who completes things in our lives. And this is what Peter and John are saying to the crowd who's gathered there. What, what I think is, is interesting in the whole book of Acts is, is just the, the method, if you like, the method of the proclamation of the gospel. It's, it's almost as if Peter and John have, through the experience of Jesus, heard the teachings and they've got it in their minds um, and their relationship with Jesus is the solid foundation. And that when they go out into their lives and into the world, through the working of the Spirit, they encounter opportunities where they then share their experience of Jesus. I mean, just looking at Acts chapter 3, Peter and John didn't go to the temple that day to preach. Um, certainly, I think Luke would have alluded to that, but they went to pray. 
And then through an opportunity that comes out of the blue, they heal the beggar, and then people start to ask questions. Because, go back to verse 11, all the people were astonished and came running to them. So people were inquisitive. What, what is happening here? And when we see God at work in our world and our communities, it is like that, friends, that people begin to ask questions. People stand up and notice. Sadly, the converse is also true, is when the church is non-existent or the church is, is very weak in our testimony, so people just carry on their lives and it's as if the church doesn't exist. I remember um, at some point in in ministry, may have been in training or even at one of our ministers' seminars, the question was asked, if your particular church uh, didn't exist anymore in your community, would the community actually notice? Would they, would they see that the church is no longer present? And that's, a, and that's a great, great challenging question to mull over. So let's go to verse 17. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as you, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. And so, you know, the, the disciples, well, Peter and John particularly in this case, they, they proclaim the gospel, they share what has happened, and then they also call the people to make a response. And um, I think I've said this a number of times, but that whole idea of repentance is to turn from the direction we are facing to turn to God. I mean, even this particular translation says exactly that, repent then, and turn to God. Greek word metanoia, re repent, to turn around and to turn to God. Because when we turn to God free, freely, um, God offers to, in, in the words of Peter here, to wipe out, to, uh, to clear away the sins in our lives, to refresh us. And that, that whole phrase, refreshing, may come from the Lord I think is something in, in the season of the Spirit which we, which we look for, that we look for that renewal and refreshing in our spiritual lives. Then he carries on, um, and I think this is mainly to speak into the context of the Jews who were gathered in their place, to speak about uh, things that they would have known well. Um, and let me just carry on, verse 21. Jesus must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through the holy prophets. So, so Peter is saying, look, we know this, and we, all of you, even though you haven't accepted that Christ is your Savior as yet, just remember what was foretold in the scriptures that we are actually here reading this very day. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. So, so that he's just trying to help them join the dots, starting from what they know. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. So gently, I think, or maybe not, not so gently, Peter's saying, hey, just remember, we've been studying these scriptures. Have you forgotten what the prophets have been saying, that this moment this jesus who has come has actually been foretold about um, and so this shouldn't surprise us verse 25 and you are heirs of the prophets and the covenant of god 
made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God first raised up a servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So it's, it's this, um, this whole encounter that starts with the beggar. Peter and John saying to him, look at us, look at how our lives have changed. We, we don't have money to give you, but what we want to give you is greater than, than money. It's actually to give you your life back. And with that would have been a whole other, um, a whole other string of things, particularly around the dignity of the person. Um, and I mean, one can just imagine the scenario that as a beggar at the gate, even though there were many religious people coming past him, I'm sure this beggar encountered a whole lot of um, bad language, bad attitudes, uh, sometimes not so kind and generous people. And some people would have looked upon him as if, and this I think comes up in John chapter 9, as if God had punished this, this man at birth. And that whole thing of, you know, did someone, did one of his parents sin that, that this man was born like this? Uh, I think it's about the man who was born blind. So some of the staunch religious people would have thought, you know what, this man has got what his sins deserve. He's, he's a cripple. So Peter and John give him his dignity back, give him the ability to walk. That changes his whole life, gives him the ability to, to work now and to earn his living in a different way. Um, and also, obviously, to encounter the, the living God who has changed his life. Um, and, and this all brings us back to the point of how do we live out our faith in this day and age? Um, even as I read this, I think to myself, you know, Lord, but it's fine because Peter and John, they were with you and they had the power to heal um, this, this crippled person. You know, when last did I heal somebody like that? And then we slowly start to withdraw into ourselves. And I think that's very dangerous, friends, because God may not use us to heal uh, crippled people, but he will use us to change people's hearts and lives when we are able to say to people, um, even just subtly through our life, look, look at us. You knew what I was like before, but I've now encountered Christ and my life is different. Look at me and follow me as I follow Jesus. And sadly, if we're honest, the church hasn't always done that so well. Um, there are individuals who certainly have, but there are many that haven't. Um, and uh, a, a number of people have been turned away from faith through the actions of the church. One particular example, and this came up in, in one of the commentaries, was um, the story of Mahatma Gandhi, that one day while he was staying in um, KwaZulu-Natal, when he was training as a, as a lawyer, a young lawyer, he decided to go to church one day. And uh, when he came to that particular church, he was turned away from the church because he, he was a person of color. And uh, he was suddenly confronted, so his biographers tell us, confronted between this massive gulf between the Jesus that he was reading about in the Gospels, because he was trying to you know, find faith, and this Jesus who was found in the church. And later on in his life, he, he, he remarked, and it's quoted in his biography um, as, as Gandhi saying these words, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And um, where Gandhi 
went to church perhaps looking for Jesus, he didn't find him there. And uh, when he went back to India, as we know, he was a very staunch and devout Hindu. And someone has also reflected and to say, you know, can it, is it possible that if his encounter with the church and Christians on that day had been different, that, that maybe all of India or a lot of India would be Christian today and not, and not Hindu? We don't, we don't know. So that's a great challenge for us friends, is that when we come to reveal Christ, is that people would see a difference in us. I'm going to leave it there because I've now pushed our time a little bit to 25 minutes. But as you reflect on this um, individually or with those who you're listening to, uh, may we just ask God's Spirit to, to be amongst us and also to help us as we share the gospel. And so friends, I pray God would bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.